Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to talk about climate bills and not just the one that passed through the lower house here last week in Australia, but the great big climate bill that just passed through the US Senate. In fact, it was the largest climate bill in US history. We're going to talk all about that. We're also going to dive deeply into the reef, or at least into a report on the health of the Great Barrier Reef, which emerged last week. There's a whole lot more to that than meets the eye. And there's certainly more than than what was reported last week. So we're going to see if we can bring to the surface some of the important facts there. We've also got some good news on one of my favourite endangered Aussie rodents. There's plenty more on the Green Canary today. I am Ant Sharwood, and this week I'm not joined, I'm afraid, by someone who's much smarter, funnier, about a thousand percent cooler than me. I speak, of course, of Elfie Scott, my normal co-host. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for her, Elfie is away. She's on a well-earned holiday in Germany and Portugal, I'm not actually sure which country she's visiting first. I'm not quite sure if she's at the Bratwurst stage of her trip or perhaps the Pastéis de Nata phase. Those, of course, are your uh, Portuguese tarts. I would happily be on either phase of the trip, but I hope you're having a good, delicious time wherever you are, Elfie. Anyway, let's get into some delicious morsels, if you like, of environmental news without Elfie. And for our first story this week, I really really want to talk to you about the reef. Um, Now, do you ever have a moment? Do you ever have a moment in life where something happens and you can just see the events that are going to unfold afterwards? Well, I experienced exactly that last week when into the Green Canary inbox, ding, came an email from the Australian Institute of Marine Science Love those guys. AIMS is their acronym. I am so all for uh, sensible acronyms. Um, Anyway, AIMS had a little email in the inbox with the headline, Highest Coral Cover in Central and Northern Reef in 36 Years. So I saw that highest coral cover in 36 years. Doesn't matter where. It was just in bits of the reef, but most amount of coral in 36 years. And you just knew what was going to happen. You just knew that certain media outlets were going to do certain things with it. I'll get there in a sec. Let's just talk about some of the material that was in that initial press release. It said, the Northern and Central Great Barrier Reef have recorded their highest amounts of coral cover since the Australian Institute of Marine Science, or AIMS, began monitoring 36 years ago. Uh, It went on to say that, you know, Coral cover in the region north of Cooktown had increased to 36%, up from 27% a year ago. There are a bunch of stats like that. Coral cover further south had actually declined from 38 to 34%, but there was more increased coral in the northern bits than there was decline in the southern bits. Um, and Ames, the AIMS statement went on to say that these results, especially in the north and central regions, are a sign that the reef could still recover. Um, now, as I say, you knew certain media outlets would seize upon that. as news that all the climate scaremongering, as they see it, over the, the, the reef was, you know, exactly that, scaremongering. I'm not going to name those outlets. That is what they want. They do not get the oxygen they crave. 
But suffice to say, one outlet, <laughs> and you can imagine who it is, ran a headline, The Reef is Strong, So Stop the Scare Campaign. Yes, the reef is strong, so stop the scare campaign. And you can probably guess who wrote it as well, but I'm not going to glorify these people. So, the reef is strong, so stop the scare campaign. Well, is the reef strong? Here's the thing, because as I say, this press release contained more than met the eye. Now, let's not forget that the reef has been teetering on the edge of getting an in danger listing from the World Heritage Committee, Uh, Let's not forget that the recent State of the Environment report listed it as being in a poor and deteriorating state. Let's go, for example, to Terry Hughes. Professor Terry Hughes is probably, you know, the most eminent uh, reef scientist in Australia. He said, yes, rapid increases in cover in parts of the northern and central Great Barrier Reef uh, since recent mass bleaching events um, are driven by larval recruitment and fast growth of juvenile weedy corals. You can't replace a dead 50-year-old coral in five years. What does that mean? Terry Hughes is basically saying there's good coral and there's bad coral. Well, not so much good and bad, but there's coral that grows back really quickly. And if that happens, that's not necessarily a sign of increasing overall reef, reef, reef health. This was also a point made really well by Zoe Richards. She's a senior research fellow at Curtin University and she has studied reefs all around the world, Marshall Islands, the Andaman Islands, the Kimberley, you name it, she has done reef work there. She wrote, the finding of high coral cover may signify a reef in good condition and an increase in coral cover after disturbance may signify a recovering reef. But in this instance, it's more likely that the reef is being dominated by only a few species. And she went on to say that this species has a very quick sort of boom and bust cycle. The species is called Acropora. They do tend to dominate after um, in the recovery phase after a bleaching event. And then those corals themselves are extremely susceptible to wave damage, to all sorts of other damage, more so than other corals. So... You know, she um, went on to, to, this is Zoe Richards from, from Curtin University, went on to, I think, give the best analogy of where the current state of the reef health is at. She said, look, when a forest recovers from a bushfire, um, you see really, really quick growth and you go, wow, there's way more growth really quickly. That doesn't mean the whole forest and its biodiversity has returned. That takes decades, not months or years. A similar situation is occurring on the reef. So even though in raw numbers, the amount of coral in some parts of the reef is at its high point in 36 years, which is the monitoring period. Uh, Overall, a very, very, very cautious picture is being painted. And it's even being painted in the very press release which came out. You only had to go down about six paragraphs to see all sorts of dire warnings about future disturbances that can reverse the observed recovery in a short amount of time. So bottom line, this was a middle story. It wasn't good news. It wasn't bad news. It was sort of slightly optimistic news, heavily tempered by caution. It was reported by certain outlets as ha-ha, reef scaremongering, um, you know, has been misplaced. Not the case at all. 
here endeth the sermon, and I think we should transition into our second story. It's a roundabout at this point. I'd normally throw to Elfie. Give my voice a rest. Elfie, what's happening next? She's not there. It hurts me. It hurts you. So I'll do it myself. Our second story, as flagged in the intro, is about climate bills. Now, as I said, the Albanese government's climate bill passed the lower house last week. After a few tweaks from uh, the, 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 the tweakers, you'd expect to be tweaking it. And the key crossbench senators, David Pocock, Jackie Lambie, and her colleague from the Jackie Lambie network, Tammy Tyrrell, a new Tasmanian senator, they've sort of joined together to demand more amendments before they pass the bill in the Senate. They said they're not just going to be a rubber stamp for it. Um, they want a bit of this and that done. I think in future weeks we'll get into the this and that. I think right now the bill, the climate bill of interest to, to people should be, it is to me certainly, um, this monumental bill that passed the US Senate. Uh, now, there was a whole bunch of stuff as well as climate initiatives. Um, so you'll, you'll see a lot of different numbers. You'll see 700 billion, you'll see 369 billion. I believe 430 billion is the amount that was attached in this bill to fight climate change. Um, it really was an extraordinary moment to see this go through the US Senate overnight, uh, or over the weekend. And um, I, I just, I want to throw to our expert in a, in a minute and, and get some perspective on this. But I just want to give you a little bit of history, a tiny bit of historical backstory. Um, I'm going to quote you from a, a paragraph I really enjoyed this week. It came from the Weekly Planet. That's a newsletter I received from The Atlantic. That's the masthead of The Atlantic, you know, the publication, not the ocean. The ocean does not write to me. Anyway, I, I get the Weekly Planet from The Atlantic. In it this week I read... Climate change was born as a modern political issue in the United States Senate. On a hot June day in 1988, senior NASA scientist James Hansen warned a Senate committee that global warming, which was previously only a hypothesis, was now not only real but was underway. It is time to stop waffling, Hansen said. The greenhouse effect is here. And James Hansen is still here too. He's 81 these days. He teaches at Columbia University. He's sort of regarded as the godfather of climate science. But the really interesting thing to all that background is, as I said, that was 1988 when he stood up in the Senate in the US and said that. George Bush, the first George Bush, who took the presidency in 1988, sometime shortly afterwards, said, we will combat the greenhouse effect. So he was taking it seriously. He said, we will combat the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Yes, he did. A Republican president said, we in the halls of power will take this threat seriously and legislate accordingly. Now, I'm going to have to do some quick maths. Uh, 2022, 1988, that was 34 years ago. Well, it only took us 34 years. It's not too bad. Could have taken longer. So why now? Why do we finally have meaningful legislation? What's in that legislation? I put these and some other questions to Associate Professor David Smith of the University of Sydney. He's an expert in all things in America, American. He's an author of books on things American. I hope you'll agree. He's a really interesting, knowledgeable, vibrant, terrific person to speak to. Let's roll our interview with David Smith. So Associate Professor David Smith of the University of Sydney, what just happened in America? 
So this climate package came as part of a bigger bill that was trying to achieve all kinds of long-delayed aims of the Democratic Party. So there were also things in there about making a minimum corporate tax of 15%. There was also something in there about allowing the US government to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies uh, over Medicare. Then there was all of the climate provisions. Interestingly, this bill was called the Inflation Reduction Bill. So it didn't even mention uh, the environment in the title. Instead, it was talking about the economic issue that is the, going to be the major issue of the midterm elections. One of the really notable things about this is it passed without any Republican support at all. And Democrats never believed they were going to get any Republican support for it. The only reason they were able to get it through the Senate on the tightest of margins so they had all 50 Democratic senators, they had the Vice President Kamala Harris as the tie-breaking vote, was because this was framed as a budget measure. Um, when something is a budget measure, you can get it through the Senate in the US on a simple 50-50 vote. Anything else is subject to what's known as the filibuster, which requires 60 senators to pass it. And there's no way they ever would have got any Republican senators behind this. So a bit like uh, the climate measures that have just passed in Australia with almost no coalition support, this was able to happen because of a change of government, because there was unified uh, government of the Democratic Party. Even then, it was a very long road to get to this point, um, two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, had both been opposed to a lot of the climate measures in the bill. And in fact, that's why this is a really scaled down version of what because, was Because proposed. he's a, uh, I know that the, the, uh, Joe, what's his name in West Virginia, is a coal mine owner himself, isn't he? He is. He is absolutely a coal mine owner. He is the biggest recipient in either House of Congress of donations from the fossil fuel industry. And that's why this package, even though it was about reducing emissions, uh, also included mandates for expanding uh, oil leases in the Gulf of Mexico and, uh, and Alaska, and will also enable a long delayed uh, gas pipeline to be built in West Virginia. So that was the kind of bargaining that was actually involved. And this is pretty scaled down. I mean, this is hundreds of billions of dollars, but the original proposed package was $2 trillion. So this is pretty scaled down. It really reflects a very kind of American approach to this, which is to throw a lot of money at trying to get both corporations and people to change their behaviour. So um, there's going to be a lot of subsidies to try to encourage energy companies to move to renewable uh, forms of energy. And there's going to be a lot of money aimed at persuading people to change to electric cars. Is what that going to work? Going... Is that going to work, David? Because I've seen that. I've seen that the bulk of the hundreds of billions yeah. will be in, in exactly that to encourage electric vehicle uptake, uh, solar. Mm. You know, they're nowhere near uh, as progressive as, as, as we are, the Americans, are they, if, for example, with rooftop solar? So is this going to make a no. difference? Look, I think it will make a difference. And what we've seen is that Americans' consumption patterns do actually change over time. Like if you look at what Americans are driving now, there's certainly far more 
smaller and fuel efficient and non-American made vehicles than they were driving, say, 30 or 40 years ago, which if you'd said to Americans 30 or 40 years ago um, that the majority of you will be driving non-American cars, they would have laughed at you. So it is possible for these consumption patterns to change. And I believe that, uh, that, that this bill can change them. But one of the really notable things is that the US government, it can try to motivate people and corporations to change their behaviour. It can't do a lot to make people or corporations change their behaviour. In fact, the Supreme Court recently ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency did, didn't have a lot of the authority that had been delegated to it by Congress uh, to deal with things like emissions. So this is all going to be done by throwing money at people and corporations to try to change their behaviour rather than making them change their behavior. And I mean, that is a, that's a very American approach. The carrot, Another, not the stick. Yes, the carrot, not the stick. Another really notable thing is that there isn't, as far as I can see, a lot of reference in this legislation to international obligations or international cooperation. And that's something that really, the idea of making America conform to international standards is something that generates a lot of opposition uh, in, in the US. Um, if, if anything, this actually gets people's backs up more than, um, than just the, the uh, sort of fact of climate change itself. Um, according to research that I did with some researchers uh, in the base in the US a few years ago, for example, we were looking at conservative evangelical Christians. We found that the majority of them actually agreed with the science around climate. What they didn't agree with was making the United States conform to international obligations uh, about it. They were very suspicious of that. So that's another thing that is reflected in this bill, that it's all about let's use our our internal power to change our own uh, to change our own behaviour. It's it's interesting because when the Morrison government put out that uh, somewhat you would argue flimsy document in October last year around COP twenty six called Net Zero the Australian Way, I don't think anyone really <laughs> knows what the Australian Way meant. I think it actually meant nothing. Um, but Net yeah. zero or you know reducing emissions the American way, according to everything you've told mm. us really there really is an american way isn't there yeah there absolutely is and certainly americans are more accepting of measures like this if they don't believe that they've been forced on them from the outside so yeah i think that 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 has a lot more resonance in the us uh than it has here where here there's a lot more open debate about the need to actually um live up to international standards after so many years of falling behind them um, yeah, whereas in the US, for Democrats to get things through, they try to talk about that as little as possible. Yeah, okay. So so wrapping up here, um, Associate Professor David Smith, and we, we do thank you for your time. Um, what, what are the chances of this ever unravelling? If, if, if there's a Republican president elected in 2024, mm. for those in the room, uh, which, which usually include me, who don't understand as, as, as much as I'd like to, uh, and certainly US political process, um, can this all be undone with a with with one signature, or is this locked in? Well, it is often actually quite hard to undo major pieces of legislation, and the reason is that pieces of legislation like this, where this much money is being spent, 
they quickly develop entrenched constituencies of people who've got an interest in them. So if Republicans get into power, say Republicans have unified control of government in 2024, by then um, there'll actually already be numerous businesses who've been doing their planning based on the assumption that they're going to be getting these, uh, these subsidies. So what it, it will actually be a little bit difficult to undo this because then they'd be taking money away from, uh, from people who are expecting to get money. So um, it's probably not just going to be undone at the, at the stroke of a pen. Um, something kind of similar to this was when President Obama got the Affordable Care Act through known as Obamacare. Even though Republicans wanted to dismantle that, certain provisions in that became very popular very quickly because they were making healthcare more cheaply available to people. So instead, they tried to sort of um, chip away at it around the edges, attacking the unpopular provisions first. That is probably what would happen um, with this. They'd be trying to chip away at the edges of it. There's also the possibility that there'll be legal challenges to this. So that um, state governments in particular may well try to take the federal government to court, saying that Congress has overstepped its authority here uh, in some way. That's, that's what I would expect. So I wouldn't expect to see a rapid reversal of this, but we could certainly see a lot of chipping away at the edges of it. It's America. There's always a legal case over everything in America. Of course there is, yes. <laughs> David, That's another thing that is the American way, yes. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, thank you, David, so much for coming on The Green Canary today. My pleasure. Well, I just think that David Smith is my new hero. Um, that is Associate Professor David Smith of the University of Sydney. Absolutely just... just Gave us so much interesting uh, information there. Thank you, David, um, on the whole situation, how it worked, how the, the bill came uh, you know, into being in the first place and why it was sort of packaged up with a bunch of other stuff. So I hope that helps you all understand what happened in America. It's a good day. It's a good week uh, in, in our two countries that, you know, even with, with all the little... Uh, ribbons and bows, some of which are undesirable. We are getting moving on climate action. Let's transition into mulch, the little bits and pieces kind of stories at the end of our podcast. And there's something that caught my eye that really rams home from the US perspective, exactly why climate action is important there. I mean, it's important for a thousand different reasons. But I read a piece on Bloomberg Green, which is another one of those things you should really subscribe to, um, <clears throat> about the deteriorating snowpack in California. Um, just an incredible story. And, and, you know, when you think about California, I don't know, what do you think of? Hollywood, Silicon Valley, wine, you name it, the Sierra Nevadas, I don't know. But... So much of what we think of as California relies on water. Um, the water that comes from snow. Uh, this, this piece in Bloomberg was beautifully written. The Western US is an empire built on snow and that snow is vanishing, it said. Um, it said that the uh, mountain snowpacks in the Sierras and in, and in the Western USA have, have shrunk on average by 23%. Uh, since 1955, they reckon that if the trend continues, California could lose as much as 80% of its 
of its peak snowpack by water volume. Here's the reason why snowpack is so important in countries that are lucky enough to have it. It's like a reservoir. It's like a big frozen reservoir and it drip feeds right when you need it in the summer, in the spring and into summer. If that snowpack is not accumulating in the first place, it completely undermines so much infrastructure. There was something in the piece about almond farms. Did you know that California makes 80% or grows 80% of the world's almonds? I didn't know that. But... um, Oh, here it comes, the pun of the week. You would have to say that uh, if we have water issues with the California almonds, they are going to cost an almond a leg. I'm so sorry about that. I'm about to go. Let me just give you one more little bit of mulch, one more little thing that crossed my desk this week. Absolutely loved it. The broad-toothed rat. Woohoo for the broad-toothed rat. It has been found in Wilson's Promontory National Park down there at the sort of bottom end of Victoria. Now, for the first time in 32 years, they found the broad-toothed rat there. The broad-toothed rat is a ridiculously cute thing. I was lucky enough to see one at Smiggin Holes in the New South Wales snowfields of all all places just back in June, a couple of months ago. Um, They actually live in the Kosciuszko National Park and throughout the the high country on on Australia's mainland... um, one of their enemies is, of course, the Brumbies. Now, you know I wrote the book The Brumby Wars, if you've been a long-time listener to the pod. The broad-toothed rats scurry through these little tunnels of grass, of sort of thatched, lovely, thick grass. The Brumbies eat that grass. They then have no defence against predators who just swoop on them. Um, so whether it's too many predators or you know herbivores eating their ground cover or just overdevelopment, or a thousand different reasons, broad-toothed rats, which really are cute. They don't look like horrible rats. They're beautiful rats. Um, They're under all sorts of pressure in all sorts of places. So the fact that they have been found at the prom is really, really good news for all of us. And I think that'll just about do us this week. We like to end on something positive, and we like to end on an acknowledgement uh, by paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this pod is recorded. That, of course, is the Gadigal people of the of the Eora Nation. Excuse me. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Before we go this week, as every week, I'd also like to remind you to email hello at thegreencanary.co. We're about to have a page where you can just go click and subscribe. But for now, please email hello at thegreencanary.co to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, which comes out Wednesday. You can chat to us at Green Canary Pod on Twitter. And you can say hello to us at Green Canary Media on Instagram. We shall see you in the newsletter this Wednesday and here on the pod next week. My voice is a little croaky. I've had a bit of flu anyway. And without Elfie here, I've been doing double the talking. So I'd better go. But thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye.